Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. With the illustrations, I wanted people to feel that these were fellow beings. They're not like these creatures that are subservient to us and actually might have views of the world that we don't understand, <laughs> that, that we just don't know, right, that we're not aware of. Hello and welcome to Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm Dusty. If you're joining us for the first time, Gaze at the National Parks is the podcast that explores the trails of America's national parks, one hiking trail in one national park, one park at a time. In between these trail-focused episodes, we have trail mix episodes, which cover a variety of topics, but mostly relate to the parks, the environment, social justice, the rights of indigenous people, and a variety of other topics important to the both of us in the scope of our show. If you've listened to our last few seasons, we've had the pleasure of having many interview-focused trail mix episodes from authors, national parks, explorers, and experts alike. We are so pleased to be able to continue interviewing folks in this coming season and excited for our guest on this episode, Gus D'Angelo. Gus fell in love with the outdoors at an early age, hiking, fishing, snowshoeing, and exploring his family's farm on Michigan's Upper Peninsula. This early love of the outdoors led to a love of public lands and the hope for all young people to get to experience their splendor. Gus is an author and illustrator with titles like New York ABCs and San Francisco ABCs. We are so grateful to be able to sit down and chat with Gus today about his newest release, National Parks A to Z, Acadia to Zion. This book is not only a guide to the U.S. national parks, but an immersive experience that allows the reader a window into the natural splendor, history, and culture of these incredible spaces. And not only that, but it is incredibly and thoughtfully illustrated. Gus, it is so nice to meet you. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you. Right off the bat, Gus, do you want to tell us a little bit about, because it's this is a very special book because you not only wrote it, but you also illustrated it. 
Right. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to create National Parks A to Z? I had been like a big fan of the parks for a while. When I grew up, I was on a, my childhood, some of it was on a farm up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. So I hiked and snowshoed and camped and fished and all that kind of stuff. So it really became kind of the outdoors was a big part of my growing up. And so I have a love for the outdoors. More recently, or probably about five or six years ago, I became familiar with how a lot of the outdoor spaces or outdoors experiences that we had when we were younger or our ancestors had and all of our ancestors, the outdoors was a big thing, were becoming less and less. So uh, one of the statistics I had seen was like 80% of all Americans can't see the Milky Way, which I thought was, I mean, I can't imagine being a kid and not seeing the Milky Way. But because we're all in these urban environments with all the light, people just can't see the stars. And so I wanted to, to kind of do a almost more like a picture book of the national parks. But then as I started traveling them to do research, it became kind of a mission, you might say obsessive mission, to create something that would basically try and educate kids and young people about why these places are important and what the outdoors means and how people can start to preserve on the outdoors. So I was kind of thinking how to inspire the next generation of parks lovers and parks protectors and advocates so that more of us can see the Milky Way, not less of us. That's awesome. And I feel like very clearly this is a book that's obviously geared towards younger people, but I think it's a book for all ages. As an artist, I was incredibly taken with it, but the information in it is also so valid and worthwhile from so many different perspectives too. So I think that you haven't cornered the market just for kids. I think it's such a great book for all ages. Yeah, like when I first headed out, like I was saying a little while ago, I was just going to do pictures. I was going to, oh, G is glacier. So just draw a picture of glacier. But then as I traveled, I started to become familiar with some of these bigger issues that the park are grappling with, which um, I've heard on your podcast many times you talk about. So like trash, the way people are treating the parks, stuff like how animal safety, another issue, cultural heritage. And I would see like at one park, they would have like a great display or a junior ranger activity book about it. But then at another park, they wouldn't mention that they mentioned something else. And there wasn't really one place where all this information was pulled together, especially for kids. And I thought, oh, it'd be super fun to do that, bring this information together and and also just have kids start to become more familiar with this, even if it was only one sentence, just to kind of plant in kids' minds that this is a topic and that this is an issue. And then maybe you noticed in the book, there's the alphabet, which is kind of a simple alphabet, but then there's like these sidebars, which I, I, I first called smarty pants sidebars. So they were like for the adult that might be reading with the kid. So when the kid has a question, the adult can kind of look at the sidebar <laughs> to learn how to answer the question. And then they can answer the question and feel like they're the smartest person in the room, which every adult <laughs> wants to feel anyways. <laughs> I mean, I think the sidebars are, you know, they're so great because it fleshes out the experience. What I really love about those is that they're not all the same thing. Like you approach that sidebar from very different perspectives throughout, which is really, really wonderful. And it gives that really immersive experience. I was saying to Dusty, this one of my questions is, was Edward Goria an inspiration for you when it comes to bestiaries? Because this feels, I mean, it's a very beautiful and not so grim bestiary when we're talking about illustrated alphabets. And um, for those of us who aren't familiar with bestiaries, could you give us a sidebar, Mike, and explain to us what bestiaries are? Be helpful for me, too. Yeah, a bestiary is, tip. sorry, this is like the book arts nerd in me. Um, 
a bestiary is a book or an index that would typically be obviously based off of animals and the alphabet, but they've since become more alphabet books that have a theme and the letters of the alphabet will follow that theme. If anyone's familiar with the illustrator and artist Edward Gorey, yes. he has done that in a very sort of grim way <laughs> with yes. with yes. children's demises, essentially, <laughs> is the yes. way that it yes. goes. Yes. But um, this hit a lot of my artistic book arts nerd buttons and, you know, national park buttons. Just to nerd out for a second on book arts. Um, I'm here for it. <laughs> I was inspired by a lot of artists that I love, including Denslow, who did all the Wizard of Oz books, or did the first one. That artwork and actually the way that those books looked I was hoping that could be achieved with this, where there's like a kind of a nice, rich texture to the paper. The colors are nice and rich and saturated, um, like kind of an old style kids book. And Mountaineers, the publisher was and the art director there just really took it beyond anything I ever thought was possible. So that when I held it for the first time, I was like, oh my goodness, this feels just like what I was hoping it would feel like. The illustrations have almost like a Boy Scouts type manual feel to it too. Yes. Like that's something I definitely picked up on. I totally see that inspiration from The Wonderful Wizard of Oz because I was such a fan of that book growing up. I remember reading it the first time I was like, oh, wow, we can take a movie and like sort of riff and make it different. (laughs) But I totally see the inspiration. Something that I was really taken by was I'm such a lover of animals. All of the animals are drawn so beautifully. And they're also so warm and friendly. It gets sometimes kind of hard to make a grizzly bear warm and friendly. (laughs) I attest to that. (laughs) Mike does a bunch of designs that get released as part of our show. And something I'm always like is like, if we do a wolf, can it not be sinister? You know, (laughs) like because wolves are like... They're often depicted that way, yeah. I hate the idea of like us labeling an animal as like evil or mean or or aggressive aggressive, just outright and so like I so appreciated the warmth how inviting all of them are (laughs) I particularly love the mole oh great great yeah but going back to the animals one of the things that was interesting with that in terms of making the animals more approachable or it's a fine line because you can kind of disnify them where they become super cute right but one of the things that was interesting was that one of the women who was helping me kind of advising me on some of this was somebody from the Ojibwe tribe up near the Minnesota area. And an example of one of her great comments in this kind of area was she was looking at the B is for the bison on B and the text. I had the text um, something like, like, if you see a bison, keep tell it or keep away from it, something like that. And then she was like, that's so different than the way we look at it is we see the bison as a they. And it's one of those things where I just saw all the parks completely differently in just that one line, where you start to see the animals as fellow beings on this planet with an equal respect. And just that nuance of referring to the bison from an it to a they is one of these things that makes the animal more of a shared being on this planet. With the illustrations, I wanted people to feel that these were fellow beings. They're not like these creatures that are subservient to us and actually might have views of the world that we don't understand, <laughs> that, that we just don't know, right, that we're not aware of. Another thing that I love about that is, well, one, the power of pronouns. 
Right, exactly. We talk about pronouns all the Mm -hmm. time and, you know, and their power and like the respect that is just inherent to proper use of one's pronouns. But referring to something as it... It's objectifying. uh, It's objectifying. And it's also lack of specificity. It's like saying like, I don't know what to call this. I am going to say it because it lacks description or something like that. But they gives that being life. Exactly. Yeah. We don't necessarily say it about something that has life. And that is the power of the they pronoun, right? Like it's, it does allow us to recognize the life inside of so many things. Right. And instead of looking at all of the animals of its, all of a sudden I was looking at all of the animals as theys, which is a whole different frame of mind. It was kind of like a wondrous mind expanding view of like um, who these fellow beings are that are sharing this planet with us. When was the tipping point for you in the process of creating this book when you said, oh, animals can be an anchoring point here to tell the story from A to Z? Right from the get-go, I was going to have animals as a major part of this book because I wanted to have engaging animals to kind of bring kids into the world. I also wanted the animals to be doing activities that kind of show in each park there's the activity that you can do. I really thought it would be cool if each park there was an activity that you could do in the park that was being done by an animal from the park, which became a challenge because they had to start with the same letter. Like the activity, the animal, and the park all had to say start with the same letter, which once you get to X, <laughs> things can start getting <laughs> a little weird. I was impressed with what you did with X. <laughs> and I think everybody who reads the book will be too. <laughs> Yeah, so that rule I had kind of set up right from the beginning and did not realize until I was like, you know, quite a ways down the road that that was providing some serious challenges. But yeah, so the animals were going to be a part of it right from the beginning as part of what would I thought would draw young people into it. How many of the parks were you actually able to get to? What sort of field research were you able to do specifically in park? Obviously, you had other people that you were working with and talking to as well. How did that process, like the culling process of all the information go? Yeah, so I went to every park except for one, and I'm not telling you which one I didn't get to. I mean, every park in the book, not all of the 63. What happened at the beginning was that I at first started doing and composing the book from home. And I had been to some of the parks in the past, um, and so I was drawing those. And then for other parks, I was just looking online and doing research, like looking at photos, looking at videos. But when I started to look at the illustrations I was doing, I noticed that the illustrations from parks that I had been to were so much better (laughs) than the ones that were from researching online. And there's the experience of actually being in the park and how the total sensory experience influences the way you're drawing, like even just the texture of the line may feel different just because of the emotional feel. Like you'll remember the way that the creek sounded. You'll remember the way the wind blew through the grass. You'll remember the way when you got to the mountaintop and looked over, you saw the sunset. I mean, there's all of that stuff that adds to this emotional power that I just could not get from online research. So at that point, I decided I needed to go to every park that I was going to illustrate. And the first ones that I went to were up in the Pacific Northwest because they're not that far away from, I'm out here in San Francisco. At that time, when I first started, it was just going to be the picture book. But then one of the first parks I went to was Lassen and a 
park ranger was doing a demonstration about the dark skies and how important dark skies are and trying to create preserves in our country where people can experience dark skies and see stars without light, without planes, without sounds, just that kind of rich star experience. At that point, I realized, oh my goodness, there's like all these cool topics I could talk about that would educate people, but I didn't know really anything about them. Like my knowledge was very minimal. I could look online and things, but I then at that point decided, well, maybe what I should do is just talk to this ranger about dark skies. So the process became that before I would go to any park, I would start connecting with people at the park. It could be anybody from rangers that were involved in certain programs. It could be field scientists. It could be organizations that are near the park. So like there's a big um, museum near Grand Canyon where they have tons of information about the park. So connecting with them, it's connecting with tribal nation members because they are in the parks, they are around the parks. There's an experience that they have with the parks that I know nothing about and talking to them about what that experience was. And so it got to the point where at every park I went to, I would have a group of people that I would then interview. So I would spend the first few days going to the major sites at a park. Then I would do more backcountry, like canoeing, backcountry camping. I'm going to more remote places within the park to kind of get more of a feel of what makes that park unique. And then I would be interviewing people. (laughs) After like maybe five days, six days in a park, I would then drive to the next park and I would do five parks maybe at a time and then go back to San Francisco to spend time with my partner (laughs) and then also do my other work. This took about a year and a half of different segments around the park. And usually after the five days in a park, I would then find a motel somewhere near another park, the next park, motel that had a laundromat in it so I could do my laundry and one that was next to a brew pub. Yeah, been there. <laughs> so that I could grab a grab a nice meal, have a beer with a nice big burger um, and fries. And then I would just set up my drawing stuff on the bar and just take all my notes, my sketches. And then just because I was just from the park, I would try and formulate from that lingering feeling what the illustration might be. So a lot of the illustrations were kind of first composed and conceived on bar tops around the United States. That's amazing. I love that. That's great. (laughs) Awesome. That's really cool. Did you have a lot of interaction with people at the bars as you were drawing? Were people like coming and talking to you? You know, not too much, actually. Not too much. Maybe the bartender might like say, oh, are you an artist (laughs) or something like that? (laughs) Yeah. And I'll take another round. Like it would just be like kind of that kind of thing. Um, But uh, I would sit there for maybe a few hours um, and just... Um, kind of just focus. And it was just, it was very relaxing and fun. I love that, like as process. Early on when I was doing illustrations, I was like, I don't remember the feel of this or we didn't experience this or I don't have photos that I took of it. So I don't feel like I'm equipped enough to be able to do that. So it it totally makes sense. And how amazing it is to have that first sketch and that first draft of what the image would be of that park happen right then as a way to sort of like infuse all of those feelings into what would eventually be published in the book. Yes. And it's funny how I'll look back at my sketchbooks and that some of the illustrations, final illustrations, almost look exactly like those initial sketches. One of the things is that I don't know if any of the illustrations you could actually go to that exact spot. So the illustrations are kind of composites of different elements of each park. So like if you go to the Big Bend one for Texas, there's mountain formations in the back that you would never be able to see all at once. Um, So it was more trying to capture... The essence, right? 
the essence exactly. So like it was never going to be a guidebook. There are incredible guidebooks for kids out there. This was more to be just what do the parks feel like? What's that emotional feeling you have? And can that emotional feeling be replicated so that when someone's looking at the book, they might feel that and might also have a longing for these places. I think that also adds to like the whimsical nature of it too. And that it's not like here we are an, an exact replica of something that I could see. It's you taking your imagination and kind of stitching these things together to create this like beautiful experience that is really just like, you know, forged from your all your senses, essentially. What I feel like this book does so well is that it incites curiosity. We are both educators. We're both teachers. I'm so curious if you're a teacher because one of the main goals of teaching is to spark curiosity. It's funny because I had felt curious about the parks, but I really didn't know what that feeling was. And it wasn't until I spoke to a ranger at Mammoth Cave. After every interview, I would ask the interviewee, like, what's three things that you would want to tell kids? One of the ones that this ranger said, um, she said, mystery. I was like, what? And she was like, mystery is one of the things that kids seem to really, really love is the mystery of the parks. And especially in the caves, because you're walking through these dark areas and you turn a corner and you can't see where you're going. And that suspense, the mystery of suspense. And when she said that, I was like, oh yeah, that's kind of the way maybe all of us feel about the parks. And what's such a great thing about them is the mystery of them, right? The mystery of when you turn a corner on the trail, what are you going to see? The mystery of you know, walking out of your campsite at night, right? To maybe go to the bathroom and it's all dark out there, right? And that is kind of like ties in with curiosity. It's that interest that you have about what's around the next corner or what's over that hill. That's probably our biggest driving force when we're in the parks too. And probably haven't really thought about it <laughs> until this moment. Yeah, I hadn't either. <laughs> like, I, I really do feel like, oh, well, like we're going to go on this hike and like, what are we going to maybe see? And like, you know, there's so many hikes where... What's there? Who's been here yeah. before? How was this yes. trail used yeah. hundreds, thousands of years ago? Yeah. Was it here? It's just questions. It's more and more questions with oh, yeah. every every step, which is really, really cool. Right. Like who drew that rock art? Who built those homes at Mesa Verde? Who built this old chapel? Who made this trail? What's over that hill? Like what's at the top of that mountain? What's down in that cave? Right. What animal is that? What insect is this? Mm -hmm. What cacti is yeah. that? Right. It's just a wealth of of curiosity experiences. I'm curious about your collaboration with members of the tribal community. It was a topic that I did not really know that much about until I started going to the parks and kind of doing more research. I became more and more familiar with um, what <laughs> one writer talked about at some point. I don't know who it is. I don't know who coined this, but this, this double reservation system is the way that they referred to it, where um, these lands used to have people on them and they used to have animals on them. And so what happened was that the lands were split into two reservations, <laughs> like one where the people were on one reservation and the animals were put on another, or the animals and landscape were another. I had grown up thinking that the national parks were kind of, you know, God pointed down and created these spaces. And they've always been that way the whole time, right? And that there was never really any people living on them. And that 
there are still people on them and using them for many different reasons. So I was extremely ignorant about this. Um, and as I became more and more familiar about some of the issues related to this, I thought, well, that should be something that well, it needs to be integrated somehow into this book. Um, and so then I just started trying to locate people I could talk with. Um, I had a really great friend of mine, this uh, photographer named Camille Seaman. She's an incredible photographer, but she was like, Gus, just call people and talk to people. <laughs> and a lot of people are willing to talk um, if you just give them a call. And so that's kind of what I did. And so in many ways, a lot of their stories and my conversations, I mean, they were all like influenced by what a lot of these people had to say. And that just created much more of a wealth for me of understanding of the situation um, and trying to illustrate some of that within this book. Yeah, I think that inclusivity is really shown, especially with the, is it is it the mole? Yeah, there's a desert rat. It's the desert, the desert rat. rat. Yeah, in Death Valley. And that was also a ranger, I think it was at Wind Cave, when I asked what are the three things. And they said, well, you know, we are trying to be more inclusive. And one of the one of the groups of people that we would like to have more inclusivity with is disabled community. And so I was like, well, maybe I can try and incorporate something about that in this book. And that got me on this long journey of meeting different people from that community and, and meeting some people that are just incredible outdoors people, highly adventurous. The desert rat in uh, Death Valley is actually a drawing of a friend of mine, this guy named Matt Tilford, who's like one of the most uh, wild uh, mountain biker like hiker camper people you could ever meet and just kind of illustrating him and the enthusiasm he has for the outdoors you know one of the first things he talked to me about was how like whenever he would go to a visitor center or he, whenever he'd go to a national park the only place he could go was the visitor center because they would have like the paved trail the asphalt paved trail at the visitor center and there were very few trails that he could um, take his chair on and he has the same spirit of adventure that anyone else would and he would talk about, wow, we'll get places, parks that are relatively flat, like Joshua Tree or Death Valley. Why aren't there trails where he could do an adventure and go camping and take some trail? And Matt's the kind of guy where, you know, he's not afraid of hitting the ground and getting back up and then continuing on. And that's part of the adventure we all have. We all kind of feel like, oh, if I slip on a rock while I'm going up to, you know, Zion, some pass in Zion, that's part of the adventure, right? And Matt has that same exact spirit. I mean, everyone has this same spirit. And so just going out like for a day to get to a campsite, hanging out with your friends and then heading back, that's one of the things that would be nice at some of these places is if there were those kind of adventure experiences for everybody. Yeah, it's something we definitely clock whenever we're in a park because it's not always the case. There are a lot of parks where there are accessible like boardwalk trails or, you know, like a paved macadam that you could be on. But that's definitely not the case in every park. So it's definitely something parks could do more to advocate for that community by bringing in more inclusive pathways and walkways and ability for adventure. Yeah. And also not being afraid to get dirty. Yeah. Like it's, right. it's like, that's what we all feel. Right. And so um, just creating experiences that have a little bit of edge to them are great. National Parks, the A to Z Acadia to Zion is published physically in a very, very specific, intentional way. Can you tell us about the details of its publishing and the conversation around making sure that it was published this way? 
I'm really proud to be with Mountaineers because they were the, the only publisher that actually would commit to publishing it in a sustainable way. And they, have, they actually have experience with that. But I didn't want to do an event where some kid would raise their hand and say, hey, um, why is the book printed overseas on plastic paper? <laughs> You know, and um, as you might be familiar with, most of our books are printed overseas. Sustainability in the publishing industry is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. And I wanted this book to embody in its physical state the sustainable issues that are brought up within the book itself. I wanted the book to be printed on as um, much recycled paper as possible. That's one of the biggest ways in which books can be more sustainable is by using as much recycled content as possible. Then there's FSC approved type papers. That's kind of like an organic stamp of approval in terms of where the papers are sourced. So the paper had to be either recycled or FSC. And actually they had to be as much recycled as possible. And then the FSC would be kicking in whatever it wasn't. All the inks had to be vegetable based. And then I was hoping that the printing itself could be done in a facility like the one it was done in, which is Friesen's. They're right in Canada, right across um, the border from uh, Minnesota. But that's a print house that specializes in sustainability throughout the whole printing process to the point of even how the place is powered to how the scraps of paper that are cut off, how those are reintegrated either in power or recycled in some ways. I wanted to also print it in North America, which is surprisingly a challenge because the book industry has moved so much overseas. And so Mountaineers was like, okay, <laughs> we'll try and make that happen. And so they did. And one of the things about recycled papers is that they're very different. And you're starting to see more and more outdoors catalogs. I think Patagonia is using more of that. And I think even REI is now. But the papers are a little bit it's different. It's not as bright. It's a little grittier. And so that's one of the reasons why the kind of Wizard of Oz type part works kind of nicely in this is because you're not using... It's not clay coated. Color gradations. Yeah, you're using dot patterns in order to create screens and half tones. Sorry, exactly. the, nerds, so like the on, nerds coming out here. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> so in this kind of papers, that worked really nicely. And the people at Mountaineers just, I mean, to me, they knocked it out of the park and really making something just, to me, it feels and looks and even smells beautiful. And there's something to textures. Like if you have a friend who's a ceramicist Right, and they make a mug or a bowl, right? Just like the, Gus and I, we're going to just have our own separate podcast. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> when you, you know, that. when you when you get your drink and it's in that handmade or that ceramic cup, it just the whole experience is richer, right? Mm -hmm. And so oh, yeah. that's what I was really hoping would happen with this book. And and printing is an art. Like the people running the presses have to be artistic. They have to really know what they're doing. They Absolutely. have to have a great eye, great sense of feel, positioning, all kinds of things like that. So, yep. But that is just like kind of a subliminal thing that adds to the whole experience. I wanted the book to feel like it could have been printed behind the visitor center. And so that was yeah. kind of, you know, what I was thinking. It looked like it could have been printed in the park. Oh, I love that. That's great. Mike literally has a degree in printmaking. And book arts. Oh, there we go. Book <laughs> exactly. Yeah, beautiful. So yeah. I think, yeah, it, it, it hit all the buttons right away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. We often end many of our episodes with a game. So we've written a game and we're curious if you'd like to play. 
I will play. Yeah. Okay. Of great. I'm no good at games, so we'll see how uh, we'll see how this goes. I think you'll be okay. I think so. Mike is going to play too. The game is called National Park Haiku. Ah, I love haiku. So what I did was based on your book and based on the information shared in the book, I created a haiku. And you just have to see if you can guess the park that the haiku is about. Ah, I love this. Okay, great. Are we ready? Yes. Okay, great. There are six of them. Do we have buzzers or something here? <laughs> are, are we competing against each other? Or is this a purely this friendly game? Like, we're working, this, fun, this is just friendly. This is just we're working friendly. together. We're working together. together. <laughs> okay, great. All but everybody at home is working against us. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, all right, great. I love that. Here we go for 100. California quail, the largest trees in the world, two parks together. What is Sequoia and? Kings Canyon. There we go. Look at that. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. Ding, ding. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay, great. For 200. And I hope everybody's listening because all of this is, I, I sourced all of these directly from National Parks A to Z. So just imagine what all of these things could look like. Okay, here we go. For 200. The egret flies high. Alligators, crocodiles swim here together. It's a Florida park. It is a Florida park, Mm -hmm. I think. Is it Everglades? It is Everglades. I think it's Everglades, exactly. There's crocodiles and alligators, Mm -hmm. and I think it's like the American alligator, freshwater alligator, and a saltwater crocodile. Is that right? Um, I do not know. Oh. I, I do not remember. <laughs> it's something like that. And they're together. Um, because of the brackish yes. water? Because of the water, yeah. Yeah, it's the only place in the world where crocodiles and alligators swim side by side. Yep. Okay, for 300. I look out and see the Colorado River, a coyote calls. Is it Grand Canyon? Yeah. I yeah. Think it is right. Grand Canyon. Yeah. Correct. Way to go. I've got okay. a great teammate. Like knocking it out here. Okay, great. For 400. Moles scurry about. Crickets, spiders crawl around. A giant network. I think that's Mammoth Cave. That is correct. All right. All right. Mammoth Cave. Okay, great. Here we go. For 500. Not far from a vent, a yellow bellied marmot yells in the distance. Mm, that's that gets a little trickier. Is this is it Yellowstone? Yes, this I is Yellowstone. Yes, way yes. to go, Mike. Yeah. Also, I, I was afraid I was going to be revealed as a fraud. He's <laughs> <laughs> never really, been any of the parks. <laughs> he didn't write that book. That was the secret park. <laughs> exactly. That was, a, that was the one park I didn't get to. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Yellowstone. I, I loved how you have in the book like a yellow-bellied marmot yells at Yellowstone. It's like, oh my genius. Play like a great turn of phrase. Anyway, also yellow-bellied marmots are my favorite animals. Marmot fascination. I do. I pitched last year to do an entire trail mix episode just on marmots. It was shot down. But I pitched it and I was like, we could do a whole thing. Just there's so many different kinds. There's so, you know, I was like, we I, talk about the science of marmot. I mean, and, and it was like, I would I try and pitch that again. It seems like it's picking up some steam. <laughs> all right. You all heard it here. Yeah, I'll take that. Okay, great. And then there's one more. Here we go. The final one. Ponderosa pines, the snow capped mountains, a red tailed hawk flies. 
technically this could be a lot of places. I, I would say it could be, yeah. It could be a lot of places. Yeah. I think it's in Colorado. Mm-hmm. If that narrows it down, Mike. Um, is it Rocky Mountain? Yes. Yeah, there we All go. All right. I was like Rocky Mountain. Oh, that could be so many places. Where could it be? (laughs) This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often. And that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gaze at the National Parks at gmail.com. And to find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website, gaze at the National Parks.com. That's Gaze, G-A-Z-E. All original artwork featured on Instagram, on our website, and in the Gaze shop is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sklios. Our music producer is Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge while recording this episode that we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Middlesex County, New Jersey. 